1: Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Dr. Shannon Hayter, dean of my alma mater, where I got my bachelor's degree, the School of International Service at American University in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Dean Hayter. I'm so proud and honored to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Laura. And please call me Shannon. It is
2: really exciting for me to be here. I am relatively new to this role, and so you're part
1: of my first adventure. So thank you. Well, I'm excited, and I love the fact that you know we're sort of shifting in our careers in different directions. You are a medical doctor originally, and you're now heading the School of International Service, which I think is fascinating and fabulous, and I know we'll get to little bits and pieces of how that's connected along the way. I, of course, was in academia and shifted more into the non Academic world, but boy, do I have fond memories of my time at American University. It was so formative studying abroad and the professors who were there. We'll, we'll talk all about that kind of stuff later as well, but such a great school.
2: Thank you. Well, I'm terribly excited to be here. This is one of the top 10 schools of international relations and foreign policies and international studies in the country. But we're different. You know, you, you mentioned it just in the title of our name. We are the School of International Service not the school of international studies and that is because we were founded on this distinctive mission of waging peace and impacting humanity and that's pretty remarkable actually and it means we excel at both scholarship and practice sort of big thinking and big doing and because they inform each other so yes. our faculty you know and you saw that when you were here our faculty work across disciplines to solve big problems in new ways and they also then advise world leaders on policy and action. And in fact, because we're here in DC, many of our adjunct faculty are world leaders in their topic in their day job. And they come and visit us in the evenings and teach and can tell us what's really happening behind closed doors on some of these big issues and debates. And so it means that our our students and our alumni leave us and they join Government and private sector and nonprofits and academics, and
1: they really deliver on this promise to impact humanity. Of course, that's a fabulous elevator pitch right there. I don't even need to ask you for it. But I have to say, that was part of what was interesting for me, as you mentioned, was that so many of the faculty members were adjuncts or were part time, not because they were waiting for the tenure opportunity to open, but because they were working on the Hill or for the WHO or the CDC or whoever it was by day, and then choosing to teach and share at night. I loved that my professors were coming from those jobs into my classroom. I mean, how much more hot off the presses can the input be? So just fabulous, fabulous opportunity there. And frankly, I think those of us who are adjuncts get a bad rap overall, but there's definitely unwarranted bad rap. Some of the best teachers out there were and are the adjunct professors, so don't overlook those. But Shannon, with all of that, what's your favorite part of your job and why?
2: Well, right now, so I'm six weeks in. My favorite part of the job is actually I am meeting and talking to so many people that are faculty, that are alumni, that are students to get to know AU and to get to know SIS. And it is, in a sense, a lot of information. You know, people say, is it information overload? Do you feel like you are drinking from a fire hose? And I say, no, I feel like a kid in a candy shop right now. Because I get to be tasting sort of all these really fantastic treats, essentially intellectual treats of what people have been crafting and doing. And, you know, some of them are really sweet and some of them are really savory and some of them are clearly recipes in progress that need a little tweaking. But it does feel like every day is then adventure and opening up my eyes in a new way to aspects of our world
1: that, you know, I hope we share with students that way, too. And aspects of the world, that's a pretty big topic. And and I would imagine there are an awful lot of big issues going on, whether they're politically related or, or, you know, environmentally or otherwise. So what's one of the big issues of the day that you have to tackle? And how do you have to adjust your approach when communicating to different stakeholder groups about it? Well, I'm, I
2: think I'm going to shock you uh, <laughs> when, I, uh, when I tell you what one of the hot topics I have to deal with is because it sort of surprised me. And one topic that I'm dealing with a lot is actually where to for the value of a global worldview, the value of specific education and training in international studies. Now, you would have thought that this is a topic that is sort of unquestionable right now, especially for those of us that work in the global world. But, you know, despite two years of this pandemic, where we see all these global impacts, despite the, you know, crises happening in different ways all over the world, we're actually seeing shifts. We're seeing shifts in young people and students away from focusing on international studies. Really? Why? You know, I think worldwide, certainly we've seen a number of countries where there has been a political pressure to turn inward, even mm-hmm. with all these global issues, and I think we've had so much division in our own national get discourse mm-hmm. that I think there is this pressure and this urge to turn inward and to look at some of these national issues that are very, very important. but I need to make sure that, that that's not in lieu of you know considering a worldview and getting skills in the rest of the world as well. And so I talk about this issue and I approach it differently, whether it is talking to parents and students, whether it is, believe it or not, talking to some longstanding experts in the global think tank world, or whether it's talking to politicians that are responsible for, you know, a lot of our political will and government funding for international studies work.
1: And what, with that, in trying to convince all of these groups, it is mind-boggling to me in today's world to think that there's fewer people are feeling compelled to study the global view, as it were, and, and turning more inward. It's not surprising, I suppose, that there's more of a, of a sense of urgency or of a, I don't know if it's fear-based or if it's just realizing we don't really understand ourselves and, and need to look more inward. But the irony, of course, with a, with a country like the United States, which has a little bit of everybody in it one way if regardless of how many weeks months years or generations they've been here that having a greater global view would kind of help you understand what's going on inside anyway but soapbox notwithstanding what when you're talking to these different groups what do they need to hear to get that reset internally to realize yes no i do need to to support greater emphasis on international relations international studies international school
2: well you know they have different concerns, right? And different levels of knowledge on this. And so when I'm talking to parents and students, and I think particularly parents and students or families that are not coming from an internationalist background, you know, that maybe their parents were not ambassadors moving around the world where they just grew up with this, you know, worldview almost organically. I think there are a few things that you want to address or that I address with them. And I think, you know, number one is saying that myth busting. Your child coming to a place where they can study international studies and have school and travel abroad. It's, we're not sending them abroad to go sit on a beach and play in the sand for a term. You're not spending your tuition money to go and be gallivanting. And so being able to unpack both the academic rigor that comes from international studies and also the fact that, and in fact, in addition to the specific skills and marketable skills your child will get by learning, what does it really mean to negotiate over difficult issues from a variety of perspectives? You know, what does it mean to be able to unpack some of the intercultural differences that can make you effective? But in addition to those skills saying, and, you know, you can actually have a a career, a full career doing global work. Sometimes parents might only be familiar with the let's say, Peace Corps or mission volunteer trips overseas. And they're worried. They're worried their child is not going to be able to fulfill their dreams professionally. Or support themselves and
1: move out of the parents' basement.
2: (laughs) So saying, hey, we love Peace Corps. We love mission trips. And also, there's an entire career track that your child will have access to, and that's okay.
1: What about the politicians or the think tanks? Yeah. Well, the politicians, in
2: some ways, for me, in some ways, are easiest. And you know, why is there a problem there? You know, we've had a lot of turnover over the last you know, decade in Congress and in Senate. And some of our longstanding champions for international foreign affairs, international relations have retired and gone on. And so as we get new members of Congress and new senators, it's important for our area of study that our political leaders care about these global issues and that they are willing to invest their budget dollars on addressing global issues, on funding scholarships and research, that whole kit and caboodle. And what I've found is oftentimes new members come in with, they're being fed a lot of myths and misconceptions and outdated information. So a lot of times they're told, oh, you know, 95% of Americans, you know, don't care about foreign policy. So if you do foreign policy, you're not going to get reelected. Or, you know, oh, you know, so many Americans don't have passports. Well, these things might have been true three, four, five decades ago, but we know they're not true now. So part of what I do is, in addition to talking about the topics themselves and figuring out what they're passionate about, I share experiences where, you know, I say I've been across my own district that runs from rural farming towns to suburban Amazon, Microsoft cities to manufacturing plants. And I can tell you that constituents all over our country care about global issues. And it really depends on what you're focusing on when you're talking about. You know, parents want their children to have opportunities around the world. Small town mayors and medium-sized town mayors, they want multinational companies and corporations to want to set up business in their town. And they want to have the workforce that's competent for some of these global companies to draw those corporations in. Just you can sort of, depending on who they represent and where they're from, it's about pulling out examples that someone might not say, oh yeah, I care about foreign policy. But you say, but you care about the environmental protections that are coming into our trade negotiations and what that's going to mean for your local agricultural export and competition and suddenly they realize okay i'm not picking and choosing between my constituency and some you know out there concept of foreign relations i'm actually focusing in on where global investments and in the us role in the world serve my people and they want to be served
1: sure sure and in serving what's an important lesson that you learned when you went from being an individual contributor to leading your first team oh my goodness you
2: know, it's sort of embarrassing sometimes to talk about these things that you learned that seems so obvious now, but maybe didn't seem so obvious at the time. I think my very first big job moving from being an individual contributor to leading a team is when I was at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I moved to become the director of our CDC Zimbabwe office. So I went from a person of one, to leading a team of about 40 or 50 people overseas in a really difficult time. You know, Zimbabwe at the time had economic and political and humanitarian crises going on, which is probably why I, as someone who was probably at least 10 years, if not 20 years younger than all of the other CDC directors in Mm. other countries, probably got this job because it it wasn't really a desirable position. So I went in with a very, I think, strong commitment that I wanted, you know, I wanted to show my work ethic. I never wanted to ask the people working with me to work harder than I was willing to work. I never wanted them to think that I wasn't willing to sort of roll up my sleeves and do any of the tasks they needed from me to be part of the team, right? So, you know, that showed up as, you know, I was usually the first person in the office every morning and the last person to leave. I was really available to jump into all of our different activities and be accessible and be part of them. And eventually two different things happened. One is one of my colleagues said to me something to the effect of, Shannon, you know, we're just never going to be able to keep up with you. And it wasn't said out of admiration. Mm, interesting. <laughs> it was said out of frustration. And you notice it was we, not even just I. So it was not just a one person thing.
1: This is something people had been discussing for a while. This was common uh, topic, okay? Yeah, and a complimentary thing that came up when we were in a retreat. Like,
2: well, Shannon, you know, think of us as an orchestra. We actually don't need a visiting oboist or a visiting percussionist to be jumping between our different sections. We need a conductor who mm. can, you know, really work across this, and they pull out where... Someone's flat over here, or offbeat over here so that we can all come together. And so the combination of those two things, I realized, number one, my intentions were actually having the absolute opposite effect on the people I was trying to lead and build a team with that, you know, my I'll never ask you to work harder than me was setting um, almost unreasonable expectation for people to mimic or show up in that way. And then two, despite all those efforts, people weren't getting out of me what they needed most.
1: Yes. And I'm sure that was, I think, one of the most frustrating things in the world, regardless of what role you're in, is when people don't understand your intention. And that can be really hard because when something is coming from a good place and wanting to serve well, but it's just not landing, right? It's just not being received as intended. And you have to realize all the blood, sweat, and tears that I put into doing this, you're feeling hurt by it instead. And to have to apologize for all of that can, can really be hard to swallow and, and hard to not, not let the ego be bruised. Was it hard to overcome that? You know, I think one thing
2: that was reassuring in it is that people would act, actually told me this, right? Mm. And so that showed me I had built a certain level of trust, even if I wasn't getting people what they needed. And so I actually was really grateful that I had, that we had enough trust and honesty that, you know, a few people were willing to highlight these things. But what was harder is just, you know, it takes practice to change habits, even, or especially if they're coming out of good intentions, right? Because you have to sort of gut check and slow yourself down and purposefully and thoughtfully
1: sort of make other choices. Which can be really difficult. And especially when you're dealing not just with a difficult Challenge of disease and whatnot, but you're halfway across the world in a different culture, probably mixing in with many, many other cultures who are also international. And there's all sorts of different pitfalls along that road in particular with the intercultural communication coming on top of everything else. So uh, just amazing work. Now, this is a chance that was your challenge. I would like to give you the opportunity to challenge our guests now. So this is our listener 24 hour influence challenge. And I'd love for you to challenge our guests directly to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today?
2: Yeah, you know, I would like to challenge your listeners to ask three people you work with, ideally a range of folks, you know, it might be people who are your peers or who are your bosses, or who work on teams with you, but three different people, ask them, what is the one thing that they do in their role that is super important but likely mostly invisible to other people, including you? You probably don't know about it. And I wanna give that challenge because I'm I'm really big on both recognizing unsung heroes and also recognizing that sometimes the most important work we do is not sexy and other people don't know actually see it. And so yeah. I think that'd be a good 24-hour challenge.
1: That's a great eye-opener because there is so much that we don't understand about other people's work. And and I would think it would be worth really in the diversity of the people you ask, who who's outranks you, who's a direct report of yours, who's a peer in a totally different department, you're in IT, they're in finance or sales or whatever it is, because Heaven knows, we don't really know what goes on behind the scenes in most of those places. So that sounds like fun, actually. So I love it. Okay, then with that, now that was a, let's talk about accountability. What's an approach that you've had to use to address an accountability issue with someone on your team?
2: Yeah, you know, I'm actually, I'm not conflict averse at all. And I'm a fairly direct talker. In fact, I've had to learn or practice how to tone that directness down a little bit if I want it to have the effect intended. But I can think of an example of where I thought I had prepared and gotten ready to have a difficult conversation and delivered it pretty well and discovered a lot of what I was missing. So I had a situation where I had a really senior expert in my organization, really qualified, hardworking person who was spending the vast majority of their time on a, I guess, a longstanding pet project, I would say. And now the pet project was great. It was really important work. It was, you know, very substantive, but it wasn't where we needed his work for the organization at this time. You know, he had some specific qualifications where we had a specific gap. And so he'd been sort of assigned a new portfolio. and. We needed to sit down because he wasn't making any progress on the new portfolio. And he wasn't making progress on the new portfolio because he was spending still so much of his focus on the pet project, I guess. And so, you know, thought had set expectations well for this. You know, this wasn't the first conversation. And when we set the appointment to sit down and talk about it, you know, I let him know what it was about so that he wouldn't come in and feel blindsided. You know, or feel unprepared or feel like it was just, you know, somebody who was going to attack him. I started by reiterating and focusing on the real critical need for this new portfolio area and how important it was to the organization, to the people we served, and such a huge need for positive impact. And I then also made sure I wasn't dismissing his passion project. I didn't call it a passion project, but dismissing his project or, or, suggesting that it was somehow unimportant or bad quality. So I covered all those points. And despite that, as you know, we talked about needing to shift his time and attention and what, what can I do to support that so that we can get to these deliverables and products and movement, he had just a majorly emotional and, you know, semi-explosive reaction, throat mm-hmm. um, reaction probably is a better term than explosive. And I was sort of, I was, I was really actually taken aback. I was so surprised. And so we took a little bit of a pause and I, and I asked him very honestly, like, what's going on? Like, (laughs) tell me really what's going on. Like, I, I'm, I'm so surprised because you're so senior, you're so experienced, clearly you have dealt with difficult differences of opinions and tensions over your career. Like I, I might have, expected this and needed to even approach it more gently if you were a really junior person who was afraid that this discussion would have career impact or threaten their job or, you know, really change the trajectory of their life. I'm like, but that's not the situation here. So help me understand why is it, why is this discussion difficult to digest? And I I wanted to hear certainly how I could have Approached it differently, but it was more there was this mystery of understanding. And, you know, he thought about it for a second and he actually said, actually, honestly, Shannon, the older I've gotten, I'm finding it harder and harder to receive this kind of feedback on issues I care about. And, you know, there is no generalization that goes with that. But I think it made me pause for a second because I realized that. As much as I noted that this was going to be a difficult conversation, as much as I also noted, you know, we were in the middle of COVID, everybody stretched. I knew he had some real complex family issues that he dealt with, too. I, I had made the, the assumption that somehow your seniority and years of experience were the barometer mm-hmm. that would have set his ability to receive my comments or how they needed to be delivered. And I, it's just made me much more thoughtful about that sensibility aspect and that personalized sensibility of not assuming just because someone is more senior, less vulnerable in their position, more experienced, that it necessarily is going to land well in an objective way.
1: So it's interesting then because okay, he didn't receive it terribly well, but when you got kind of metacognitive with him and said, let's not talk about the content. Let's talk about how the conversation is going. What happened here? And he acknowledged that it was getting harder as he aged. Did he use that as an excuse? Like it's just the way it's going or was it a little bit more acknowledging that, yes, this is what's happening. And I realized that it's not appropriate. I'm struggling emotionally and I know I need, was there any sort of apology to it or acknowledgement that perhaps it wasn't professional rather than just like, look, I'm This is who I am and you have to deal with it.
2: You know what? It was actually a very human and very productive response. I think because I paused and asked him like really what's going on versus Mm -hmm. like shoving him out of the room and or apologizing or anything else. And he didn't apologize for it and I didn't apologize for it. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, that was, we were in the same piece, but just by sitting with it, he was able to, I, my perception, I saw him sort of decompress because I asked him about it, not from the explosion itself, but because I asked him about it, and he thought about it a little bit, is he was able to decompress, and I think he recognized that his how tightly he was holding this and how deeply he was feeling it was really out of proportion to the request being made, so moving forward, did he receive feedback better from there? Well, I mean, I think even just on this topic, he left the room thinking. More productively about how to make some of those shifts versus just fighting against the shift, and it just gave us a much more lower threshold, more human check-in as we progressed than you know might what might be like a come back in and tell me where you're at at this and yeah
1: no that that sets the tone differently and it, it establishes a much different dynamic to your relationship as well and ability to have those mutually respectful if not easy but still productive conversations now. As we keep moving more and more into the perpetually hybrid workplace of sorts, what's one of your main concerns or pet peeves and what's an ideal solution?
2: Yeah, that's a perfect question for the time, isn't it? Yes. It was really, it's easier when we're all in person or we're all remote, I think in some ways. And I think this hybrid world is one we're still exploring. And so I think my main concern is if, People don't realize that in a hybrid space, those who are virtual by choice or by necessity may have to supplement their virtual meeting and event participation with additional engagements or actions if they're really going to achieve the influence or impact that they, they deserve, really. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that this veneer that virtual access is somehow the same as full influence and effective engagement. And we've sort of smoothed over the fact that it's actually still very different to sit across from someone eye to eye and or next to them where you're whispering to them and have a difference of opinion that you have to state directly to people than to be hearing it around a Zoom call. It's different to have five or 10 minutes outside the conference room before you come in to sometimes have coffee or chat with someone and sort of, you know, lay the groundwork for what you might want to achieve in the meeting in an informal way. And so I think there is absolutely ways to have that kind of influence and impact still virtually, but sometimes you have to be very aware and very purposeful of what, in addition to the scheduled meeting, you might have to do to really influence your colleagues get them prepped and make sure your voice is not just listened to but heard in the decision making and i think i think in our effort to make sure that options are available for people sometimes we're we're glossing over some of the challenges there in ways that will disempower people as opposed to empowering them to be effective
1: yes and it's something that we we get so used to just being here in our own little world connecting people by clicking a join meeting button. And in some ways you can achieve similar results and in other ways you just can't. And I think it's really critical to know the distinction between those and and leverage each accordingly. Uh, Now, if somebody at the School of International Service wanted to move up into a more senior leadership role, aside from, of course, their technical expertise, what's one skill they'd have to demonstrate to you and why?
2: Oh, well, I can tell you one skill that I really look for is the ability to, I guess I would say to change hats. What do I mean by that? You know, oftentimes, when you've been leading a team in an organization, sometimes what makes what I see making people effective is their ability to advocate to whatever the decision making layer above is, for their team and and what they need in terms of resources, in terms of bandwidth, in terms of attention, and to be able to be a strategic, strong advocate for your team's needs. What I need to see for someone then to move up and operate in that decision-making layer is, are they able to take off one hat that belongs solely to that team and try on multiple hats to understand the perspective from other teams at all as well. And to ultimately be able to show up in that leadership group, not as an advocate for one team or one position, but to share this sort of burden of what are the trade-offs and what are the priorities and how do we make decisions that will serve the entire organization versus just advocating from, you know, one hat or one position.
1: Yes, it's of course easiest to know what, what's in your wheelhouse and to focus on that. What they say, what's the expression when you're a hammer? Everything looks like a nail, but to start to understand what the wrenches and the screwdrivers and everybody else is looking at as well. Now, finally, as Peter Drucker famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. What's one communication pattern that's had a really big cultural impact on a team that you've been on, positive or negative?
2: Yeah. Oh. I'm going to end with a really positive story. Wonderful. And it was a positive story that was a surprise to me because I thought it was just a little thing that I was doing because I cared about it and I didn't expect it to have a a widespread positive cultural impact. And this is, I was at an organization, an organization that was a little traumatized, I have to say. You know, it had some scandals in leadership before I joined, had had some bad press and A lot of people were demoralized. There was a lot of mistrust within the organization. There was sort of a culture of information hoarding and gaslighting in some Mm. ways. And so one thing I started as a component of just my sort of weekly Happy Friday emails was an element that I called unsung heroes, where I said, listen, nominate. I am just soliciting examples of someone you want to thank. For something that they did for you, whether it was a small thing or a big thing, could have been as small as helping me finally get this travel voucher in that had bounced around, you know, 30 times and I couldn't get it right, to as big as, you know, helping me pull off a meeting with the president and the minister of health in this country in a way that was productive. And Who's nominating? Who are you nominating? And what's the shout out? These are really just about giving shout outs. And we would just list them all in my email. The reason I first started to suspect that this was very culturally different is when I talked to my team about, okay, logistically, you know, how do we work this out? Like, who do they send nominations to? What would you guys recommend? The first response I got was, well, you know, we can have a pattern where they nominate people at the teams and they go up to the this level of office and this level office and then they will select one to put forward as their nominee for the award this week. Right. It's like, oh no, no, no. This is not about picking and choosing and it's not a winner yeah competition. And it's not something we need to ration. We don't need to ration our gratitude. (laughs) There is room for recognizing every one of these shout outs and then learning why it's important to people. And so we did that. It was like, oh uh uh-huh and it ended up being the most popular thing we did got massive feedback from our culture change meetings, from individuals that this became people's favorite part of the week. Yes. Very simple. Yeah.
1: Yes. I think it was Mother Teresa who said there are no small small acts, there are just or small acts with great love, something along those lines, but there's no such thing as something that's too small to be of value. You know, this is really a good example of where small details make a huge difference. And really that's the that's the the overarching theme of everything that we talk about here at vocal impact productions, and on the Speaking to Influence podcast, little details, little tweaks can really have a massive impact on your success and that of everybody else. And I think that's what you do at SIS and American University overall as well. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today. How can people learn more about you, American University, and SIS?
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. Go to our webpage, American University, and you can click through the schools and find SIS, so American.edu. And then I think second, I am kicking back up my Twitter feed. It's been on hiatus when I've been overseas, and so it's now time to kick it back up. So if people have questions or thoughts or recommendations for me in this new role, I'm at Shannon Hader
1: on Twitter, and I'd love to hear from you. Terrific. Well, thank you again so much. It's been an honor to talk to you and reconnect with my old school. And to everybody else out there tuning in, thank you. As always, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple, Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, your favorite platform, and more, so we can help even more people to increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sicola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite.